Hello, listeners, book lovers, and friends. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Holly Payne, the host and producer of Page One, a podcast that celebrates the stories and craft that go into writing the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. So why create a podcast about the first page? Well, all master storytellers have a secret. Their first page is often their most rewritten page because it has to work so hard to achieve so much, hooking the reader. And for those of us intrigued by how master storytellers work their magic, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to talk to the world's most beloved authors about the craft. And today, we have the great delight of talking with Dallas Woodburn about her collection of short stories, How to Make Paper When the World is Ending, published by Kohler Books in June. Dallas Woodburn is the author of five books, both traditionally published and self-published, and also the editor of two national anthologies. She has written for dozens of magazines, newspapers, websites, and 30-plus books in the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Her latest novel, Thanks, Carissa, for Ruining My Life, was a number one release on Amazon and an Apple Books bestseller. Dallas received her BA degree in creative writing and entrepreneurship from the University of Southern California and her master's degree in fiction writing from Purdue University. She was also a John Steinbeck Fellow in creative writing at San Jose State University. As a successful author, coach, and writing professional, Dallas has led groups and seminars at a number of national conferences, festivals, and book fairs. She is the host of Thriving Authors Podcast and founder of the organization Write On Books that empowers youth through reading and writing endeavors. Dallas Woodburn, welcome to page one. Thank you so much, Holly. I am so excited and honored to be here. Well, thank you. It goes both ways, always. And it's just such a delight to have you here with us today. You're the first guest on the page one podcast to share a collection of short stories which I found so captivating and fun to read. And we talked a little earlier this week, and I let you know that you literally dance with words. And I can't wait to look closely at that dance in this episode. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm just so honored to be your first short story guest. Yeah, I'm so excited too. And it was so fun to read a collection of short stories. It was just delicious. Each one was something different and offered something special. I'm excited for other people to discover this collection too. And because we avoid all spoilers on page one, I'm only going to read your book summary, which offers some great log lines for several of the stories in your collection, such as a couple sets off on their first long weekend together with romantic or murderous intentions. I'm intrigued by that one. A recently divorced father attempts to jumpstart his life by performing as John Lennon in a Beatles cover band. (laughs) That makes me laugh. And a young woman becomes obsessed with a sweepstakes contest in the wake of her roommate's sudden death, among many other wonderful short stories. Now, Entropy Magazine noted of your first story collection, Dallas Woodburn is a master of writing stories that never cease to surprise or carry a wave of emotional impact. And that is so true. And I'm so excited to talk about this and how you render that emotion on the page. So let's dive in. And I wish we could look at the first paragraphs of all 16 stories in this incredible collection, but we've got time for about four today as we discussed. So we're going to discuss the four stories for whoever's listening, maybe you already have pre-ordered a copy, but we're going to talk about the namesake title, which is How to Make Paper When the World is Ending. We're going to talk about Feeding Lucifer. We're going to talk about How My Parents Fell in Love and then Frozen Windmills. 
So let's start first with the title of the whole collection, How to Make Paper When the World is Ending, which is a title I love because it raises so many questions. Will you go ahead and please read the opening paragraphs of that first short story? Yes, I'm happy to. Okay, so this is How to Make Paper When the World is Ending. There was a path beside the ocean. She used to go for walks along it, sometimes with Jack, the family dog. The path wound along a bluff. You could look down at the beach, the children running barefoot and building sandcastles and rock sculptures, and you could look out at the deep blue water, which seemed to stretch outward infinitely. The horizon, a blurred union of ocean and sky. Today is family day at the transfer station, which means Aaron has to work on a Saturday. Rolf is still sleeping when she leaves the apartment. She doesn't kiss him goodbye because she doesn't want to risk waking him. This early on a Saturday morning, she can't bear the sarcastic curl of his lips as he holds in some patronizing comment about her job. She grabs her day pack and her reusable mug filled with coffee and wheels her bike outside. Let's start here because it's like an album, right? When you choose the title and it's always going to be at least one of the titles of one of the songs. So how did you choose from these 16 stories? Why did you want this to be the the title of the book too? A great question. Titles can be tricky. I think for me, usually the title either comes immediately for a story or for a book, or it has to germinate for a lot longer. This story title was one that came very quickly. It just sort of emerged as I was writing the first draft. And then when I was looking over all the different titles of the stories, and I was thinking about some of the deeper themes that I feel emerged from the collection as a whole, And one of them is a lot about grief. And when I've been grieving in my life, it does feel like the world is ending. So having that in the title of the collection, that idea of the world ending just felt appropriate and kind of encapsulating. And then there is something about, as you were saying, with the title, hopefully being intriguing, looking through the titles and trying to find one that felt like it captures the essence of the collection and also hopefully makes readers a little bit curious to learn more. You do such a great job of that. I mean, it raises such a question. I know my daughter, who's a voracious reader, she's 12, and she grabbed this too. I I wish we could do like all four of these and then dive in, but I'm going to probably piecemeal it out so that we can discuss each one of these openings. But today, I noticed that you had an essay posted yesterday on Brevity's nonfiction blog. So I said, I always do my homework, but it literally was just posted on June, I think, 22nd. Is that right? And yes. Yeah. I was not even 24 hours old. I don't think. It's amazing. I love this. And you write in the essay that you published yesterday, communing with ghosts. And you say that you used to keep a journal and that you would write to your paternal grandmother instead of just like dear diary. And you describe the process of writing it as confiding in her. And I love that so much because I think it captures so well what you've done in this entire collection. And you feel there's a reader that you had in mind, a deeply personal audience when you were writing. And that creates such an intimate relationship with the reader you bring us so close to the voice and the memories that you're mining through that connection. You wrote, and I'm quoting your essay, as I captured these half memories and words, they became both more tangible and less authentic. In the same way a photograph ensnares a moment and looking back, your mind remembers the still life 
frozen photograph rather than the messy blur of the actual memory. And that's just so beautiful, Dallas. <laughs> it's so great how you describe that whole process. Well, thank you so much. I was trying to articulate it to my husband with how I feel when I'm writing nonfiction, especially about people that I've lost and how it does feel that way. Like there's something, there's this impulse I have sometimes to try to capture something in words, like if we don't capture it, that it'll seep away somehow. But upon capturing it, it's like, I remember the way that I've written about it as opposed to the actual memory, if that makes sense. So it's a little bit messy, I guess. But it's messy in a great way because in that messiness is the intimacy, right, of the mm. voice that you establish. And you just have to open yourself up to the voice and allow it to flow through you. Or as you have written about in the past that you lost a really close friend in your mid-20s and you oftentimes can communicate with her and write to her and share of things, whether it's your journal or actually in the short stories or fiction or nonfiction that you're writing, you know, hearing her in dialogue and, and all of that, I almost feel that without that, we miss the stickiness of, of all of it. And it's their words and they might be beautiful, but they don't land. I mean, do you sense this to be true of your own experience? Because I find that the way that you're articulating having that audience from the beginning, and it's not like all the readers, it's a dear, dear grandma or dear friend thinking of that person while you're writing the story. It's like you pull an audience toward you around a campfire and you give us the thing that people crave and can't live without, which are stories, right? That really help us understand the human condition. So I'm just curious if that resonates with you in terms of what you're really doing and doing so well um, when you create this kind of intimacy with the reader. Yes, absolutely. That really resonates. And I love the way that you make that connection between writing to a specific person and the voice. I've never thought of it in quite that way before, but I do feel like as I've grown older as a writer and experienced more loss in my life. And my friend who passed away was one of the biggest champions of my writing and always read my work. And so I do think of her a lot when I'm writing. And I think it's helped me give myself permission to write in a way that feels authentic to me. I think it also relates to partnering with the story and letting the story unfold on the page the way that the story wants to as well, as opposed to trying to force certain things to happen. We were talking before we started recording about, I feel like sometimes my voice can be a little bit quieter than sometimes in workshop or in my MFA program, I would get notes to try to make it louder in some ways, make it splashier, like throw in some more curse words, you know, but it didn't really feel authentic to my voice. And so I think it has been really helpful giving myself that permission. And as you articulated it, I did realize that when I am writing, more and more it's become instead of an outward activity it's really an inward process where it is like communing with these people i've lost it's much more of an inward focus especially with the first draft i've learned at least for me as a writer that first draft i have to really have the blinders on not really thinking about anyone else reading it necessarily, then maybe that one reader or that one person that I'm writing to or writing the story to connect with them. And now I have my first set of chills. A few moments ago, you said 
when you're partnering with the story. And I think that is so important for writers to remember. It's not so much about them, even though that they're the vehicle for these words to come through. It's a partnership. And not many people, I think, talk about it. What I feel is so wonderful about where you're at in the process and where you are in your life, you own your quietness. We talked about before we were recording, in that quiet is where you hear the chimes. If you try to put anything else on top of it, you're going to miss the little thing, magic, the gem that's in there. And I feel that that's the whole point. There's something really loud in quietness. And mm -hmm. I, I think that subtlety is not valued so much these days where everything has to hit the reader over the head. And I personally really love nuanced things where I'm like, oh, wow. They weren't trying to be clever. They just had the right thing at the right time. And it went click. And that's what you hear. You hear it's almost a somatic like giggle inside because you're just like, yes, that is what this was all adding up to is that line. If you unpack it, has everything that we needed to know. And it's the subtext, right? Isn't the subtext what isn't said? Yeah. Yeah. And I think short stories are such a beautiful vehicle for that too. With trusting the reader, they're condensed, right? They're compressed. If you think about a short story compared to an expansive novel, but sometimes I do feel like there's almost a little bit more margin around short stories. We just get a glimpse. We often just get a glimpse of these characters and their life. And so you're trusting the reader to take in what you intend, but also there's margin for the reader to take in more. I mean, I think especially we all bring our own lives and our own experiences to the stories. And something I find so magical is yes, partnering with the creative spirit to birth the stories. And then also it's just really interesting. This happens with novels too, but I think especially with stories to see the ways in which different readers partner with you to bring new meaning to the story that perhaps you weren't even originally intending, you didn't see there, but that definitely is there in the story too. That's when you're like, okay, this is beyond all of us, right? <laughs> I just, you know, it's just like, you just did your job. You showed up to the keyboard and let it come through. That room for discovery and meaning is just wonderful. And we're going to tap into that in a second, because the other thing that was very serendipitous when I looked at the Brevity's nonfiction blog today was three things your first pages must have. Oh my goodness. Where, they're perfect. I swear. So these are the top three things. So I encourage everyone to check out this blog post on Brevity's nonfiction blog at June 23rd, the day of this recording. And this is something that Dallas and I are going to talk about next, because these are things that she has to balance between being a novelist and also writing short stories. But in this blog post, it says, for an agent, publisher, or reader to keep going, your first pages must. And here are the three. Number one, establish the main problem or quest. Number two, make us want to spend time with the protagonists, not the same as liking them, they have in parentheses. And number three, teach us the rules or theme of the book we're entering. So with that in mind, let's jump into the next one, because I think Feeding Lucifer will be perfect for this in terms of exactly what you were establishing. You literally are achieving these three things in this opening. So I think this is going to be a fun way to take us through these four sh short stories in your collection. I love this, Holly. Okay, so this is the beginning of Feeding Lucifer. The summer I turned 12, we moved to California. At first, I was thrilled. 
I had spent my life surrounded by soybean fields and windmills, gray skies and muddy snow, and California was a land of palm trees and glamour. In my hometown, a small suburb outside Indianapolis, my friend's parents worked at Walmart in the Cargill plant. In California, I imagined my friend's parents would be celebrities, or at least paparazzi. My father's job transfer was my chance for a life upgrade. This is one of my favorite stories in the collection. I love where this story takes us. I could see this. This could be another novel, another YA novel. For those listeners who might be meeting Dallas Woodburn for the first time, she is the author of some award-winning young adult fiction. And there's a story in this collection, The Frozen Windmills, that actually she did turn into a novel. And we'll discuss that when we get to that story too. But what I love about this one particular opening paragraph for Feeding Lucifer is it literally checks the boxes. And it's not that you're starting this thinking, this is what I have to do. It's just that you naturally know how to do this. In this blog post today, it says in young adult fiction, you need to set up a very strong voice with the character and something that they're dreading. And in this way, it's the opposite. She's moving away from what she dreaded. And yet she's expecting this to be this like Shangri-La when she gets to California. You're setting up an expectation here, especially in that last line. My father's job transfer was my chance for a life upgrade. I just think it's pow, pow, pow. You did it. Oh, thank you, Holly. I love that insight. I lived in California almost my entire life, but I moved to Indiana for three years for graduate school. And my parents also are both Midwestern transplants who separately grew up in Ohio and both of them around the age of 11, 12, their parents got a job transfer and moved to California. So I also had kind of grown up with some of their stories about how they were excited to move. They want like they were going to have swimming pools and it was sunny all year round. And that was in there as well, especially at that age, I guess almost like your chance for a reset. I think at all ages, there's this glamour, this idea of being able to start anew where nobody has any expectations of us. Absolutely. And that's the age where your own identity, where you're you're aware of yourself really kind of maybe for truly for the first time in terms of that, like, where do you stand socially? Where is your family? You know, we always had beat up used cars and I was always like horrified, you know, and my dad would always have us stop on the side of the road during family vacations and the hubcaps would be rolling down into the ravine and he would get my brothers to get out of the car, Michael, Eric, go get that. And they'd be chasing after this hubcap so we could put it back on the car and always kind of cringing and just going, this is my life. This is my family right now. <laughs> and, you know, my dad, to his credit, he was, he was saving his dollars so he could put us all through, through really good colleges. When you're that age, you only see your brothers looking like maniacs running down a hill off of a freeway <laughs> trying to grab a rolling hubcap. So I just love this. And the other thing too, I wondered in terms of the sensibility in this story, because it's so place oriented, you're creating a world. There's no spoilers, but I love also how you, you flip those rules because what she discovers is so the opposite of what she could have ever expected when she gets there. And I just love that you take us in such a wildly different direction. You just don't expect it. And I liked where you led us when she lands in California. Oh, thank you. Yes. I don't want to give any spoilers as well, but it was a story that took me on some surprises as 
I was writing it as well, which I think is always fun when that happens for the writer. I often have kind of a vague sense of where the story might end up. I had an idea with this story, kind of the final scene. So at the very end of the story, she's grown and she's kind of reflecting back. So I sort of had an idea of that. But some of the surprises that happened along the way for the reader were also surprises for me, which is always fun when that happens. I also liked exploring her age with I hope that as an adult reader, there are certain things that she has expectations and that we have a sense that some of these aren't going to be met in the way that she thinks they will. Like you were mentioning, your father was saving money to put you all through college. I think often at that age, there are just things we don't see or we don't understand or we don't appreciate. And it was a fun age to write about, like an interesting challenge as a writer to get into her perspective and be able to show some things that she is a little bit unaware of or the ways in which her perspective at that age, you know, differ from the adults who are reading the story. Yeah. And actually that's a, that's a good question. Before we jump into the next one, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about accessing that age. How do you access that? I mean, I have a 12 year old daughter, so I could try to, you know, try to do that as, you know, from the point of view of a 12 year old. But how do you do that? I mean, you have really young children and you're not 12. So what do you, how do you know that you're on, on the nose with the age that you're writing about? I guess I believe that we all, you know, you and I aren't 12 anymore, but we still have that 12 year old version of ourselves inside of us. I've always loved the young adult genre. I loved it when I was a teenager. I still love reading it now. I think there is a lot of really interesting and exciting writing that's being done in that genre. But also I think there's something about that age where so much is new and there's just so much at that age where you're trying to sort of discover your place in the world and so much is open to you, so much is ahead. I do feel like maybe it's reading a lot of this genre, but also I just feel like my 12-year-old self still talks to me a lot. I can access her. A lot of it is the, like I was mentioning with the first draft, I think is really for you. And so try and write a voice that feels authentic for you, whether it's your 12-year-old self or your 16-year-old self. And even if you're writing fiction, not nonfiction, I think it can be really helpful to try to delve into some memories that you have from that age. I was a huge journal writer, as you mentioned. So I'm able to kind of read back through some of my old journals, my old diaries, and just kind of remember like what that felt like to be going through those experiences. If I think too much about other readers during my first draft, it really stifles me. But then I do think it's important, especially when we're writing for a younger audience and we are not that age anymore to get those early readers. I know you're doing that right now for your novel to actually get it in front of some actual 12 year olds or like some actual teenagers. Usually what trips me up is that they will correct me on certain lingo or, you know, technology is always changing or they'll say, oh, what does that mean? That, you know, not what kids are saying anymore today. So things like that. But I do feel like the the core, like emotional experiences remain the same and we still do hold those inside of ourselves. You're listening to the Page One podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm Holly Payne, your host and producer, and I interview the world's master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their books. As an author and writing coach, I know that the first page of any book has to work so hard to do so much, hook the reader, hook all of us. So I thought it would be a lot of fun to ask your favorite master storytellers how they do their magic to hook you. And after the first few episodes, it occurred to me that maybe someone listening might be curious about how their first page sits with an audience. 
writing takes courage and courage needs a community. So I've opened up the podcast to any writer who wants to submit the first page of a book they're currently writing. If your page is chosen, you'll be invited onto the show to read it and get live feedback from one of page one's master storytellers. If you're curious about this, listen to episode six with Daniel Handler, AKA Lemony Snicket, and the courageous Hillary Hamilton, who submitted the first page of her book called Boobs. I love when there's a chance for a new author to get discovered and page one exists to inspire, celebrate, and promote the work of both known and unknown creative talent. If this excites you, please submit your page at hollylynnpayne.com backslash community. That's hollylynnpayne.com backslash community. And now back to the show. So I want to jump into the next one because this turns a, a little bit in terms of voice and age. And it's how my parents fell in love. I've got a lot of questions about this one too. So do you want to go ahead and read that first paragraph? Yes. So this is how my parents fell in love. My mother walked out of a grocery store. She wore a red dress, her hair permed the way it looks in the photo albums. My father drove up in a car, a fast car, silver, a car that goes vroom, vroom. He did not know her yet. She looked pretty in that red dress with ruffles at the hem. He rolled down the window, leaned out and smiled. Hubba, hubba. They fell in love and lived happily ever after. I had asked you earlier this week, if this was an exercise in flash fiction, you're playing with us as readers, you're playing with our perception and you're playing with our perception of how language looks on the page. Because when you read this, it sounds really simple. And yet as you read the whole short story, there's so much beautiful complexity about relationships. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Like, this is kind of a magical, masterful short story, I think, in terms of what you were doing. Oh, thank you. I sort of think of this style as it being opposite Russian doll type story. Like, you know, the Russian dolls where there's a big doll and you open up the smaller doll. This is kind of opposite because it starts out really small and then it gets bigger and bigger. But this one, actually, Holly, the behind the scenes of this story, what kind of inspired it is I have a younger brother and he just had this made up story of how my parents met. It was kind of based on this little thing at the beginning. The hubba hubba came from him. It was something about my dad drove up, saw my mom in the car, rolled down the window and said hubba hubba, and they were together ever after. So some of that came into that very first story. I think one thing I wanted to explore with this story was almost like that game of telephone, like stories can ebb and flow and change. And and sometimes, especially with families, we all have certain stories in our family that are passed down that we hear over and over again. And that almost calcify into this is how it was. But I've always been really interested, I guess, in what was going on outside of the margins of that story. Like what was cooking on the stove for dinner and, you know, what was playing on the radio? I feel there is just so many interesting nuances that sometimes get lost when we condense, condense, condense. So I was trying to start off with something, like you said, seems really simple And also even that idea, right? They fell in love and lived happily ever after. That also just has always interested me as an endpoint in a lot of stories of what actually happened beyond that. I think also in this story, I was exploring the idea of getting to know my parents. As I've gotten older, I know them in different ways. When you're a kid and you look at your parents, they almost seem like these gods or their life seems so removed from yours. So adults, of course, they fell in love and they're together happily ever after and they met. And of course, of course they met because they had to, because they're my parents and their mom and dad. And 
So I guess I was just also thinking about trying to get into that moment a little more and like, well, what, maybe what did happen or what could have happened or how did they almost like miss each other or what were the moments of tenderness or nuance or beauty that are lost and we have pared down story, if that makes sense, that kind of gets passed along. Also just seeing my parents as messy, real, authentic people, you know, in the same way that I am, which sounds silly, but I think it takes a while. It took me a while to see my parents in this way, like in the way that I've always felt, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It's the way that we perceive versus the way it's always been. The fact is like there was so much more to it as the story expands and you start to bleed into the margins to explore them. We then get a sense of a little bit of edge and it's good and it's authentic and it's real. And then you have this more multidimensional, multifaceted relationship versus the one that brother had made up in his mind. I just love how you played with that as a beginning to the story. So it's a really fun one to read. Thank you. It was a fun challenge as a writer too. For other writers out there listening, like I think this idea of doing a Russian doll story, that's just the term I use for it in my head. It was fun to think of certain details from the first little nugget that I read out loud that can be carried through or like little glimmers that can show up in the later stories. So maybe it's the hubba hubba, like how could that show up in a different way? Or like the silver car, like the glint of silver or the red dress. I think it can be fun to play with those little details and think about different ways that they sort of show up and the reader sees them. Like you're saying, it kind of impacts us in a new way when we see those same familiar details crop up. And then they're all playable. What you're setting up becomes playable. The example of the silver car, when I first read that, it made it sound like it was a sports car. But what if you realize, no, the silver car, it's hubcaps were falling off. (laughs) And then that changes the whole perception of the silver car going vroom, vroom, right? Maybe the vroom, vroom is actually a hole in the muffler. And that changes everything. And there's more depth. And I think that's what I loved is as the story got wider, it went deeper too. It's just a really playful way to build out a story. So I think it's a great one for people to study what you did in this particular one. So let's jump into the last one, Frozen Windmills, because I know there's probably a lot to discuss about this one. Frozen Windmills. The night of the snowstorm, Sandra woke disoriented in an unfamiliar bed. The room felt too warm, stuffy, suffocating. She sat up, panic tightening her chest, blinking for a few moments until her eyes began to adjust and she came back to her life. February, Indiana, Kevin. This was his apartment. He slept beside her, mouth open, breathing heavily. Sandra hadn't yet slept beside him enough to know whether he was having a nightmare. Does he always breathe like that? She slid out of the covers, careful not to wake him and crept out of the bedroom. Kevin's apartment was darker than her own. She held her arms straight out in front of her and felt the walls for guidance. She would go to the kitchen and make a cup of tea and sit there until the anxiety eased its grip and she could sleep again. This one is so interesting in terms of how you're setting this up. You can feel some darkness in this one, right? You definitely feel there's something foreboding. And it's the most condensed paragraph of all. It's the biggest one. And this isn't spoiling anything for anyone, but Dallas actually has written this into a YA novel. 
that you've just finished. Yes. Yeah. It's funny to say with writing, right? I've just finished the umpteenth draft. (laughs) I've just finished the current version. I've been probably working on it for close to a decade, but yeah, it is so funny with writing projects and stories and how sometimes they don't leave us. Let's talk about that. They don't leave us. How many of your other short stories have you made into novels? Only this one. There's one other story from my first collection that I think might ultimately become a novel. The characters are still chattering away. That one might expand, but it's actually a little bit unusual for me, Holly, because normally when I get an idea, it feels pretty clear right off the bat, whether this is going to be a story idea or a novel. I know some writers start a story and it just expands and expands and expands and expands. But usually for me, it kind of feels one way or the other when I first begin. So how do you know? I mean, is it somatically that it feels different? What what are the indicators? I think it is related to the energy of the voice and the story. I almost think of short stories as a candle that burns really bright, but burns out quickly versus a novel that burns slower, but longer. It's almost like I have this sense of this voice can't be sustained for 300 pages, but the intensity feels like 12 or 15 or maybe 20 pages. That's the length that the voice needs to, to get the, the story across. There's so many things that you bring in here in the middle of this opening paragraph. She sat up panicking. So you have that. She wakes up disoriented. That's the very first sentence. So one of the things they say in this blog post today about the important things that you should have on your first pages is action. It's the middle of a snowstorm. She wakes up disoriented in an unfamiliar bed. So already you're stacking these things. The very next paragraph, something happens to her as a result of this kind of like ambling in the dark in this unfamiliar place. But you're already bringing in the panic in her chest, this person sleeping beside her, and she's wondering if he's having a nightmare. We're going darker than the other stories. And you get that foreboding sense. You talk about the sustainability of the voice. How much does that have to do with rhythm? Because I think you're a fairly rhythmic writer. There's a musical quality to your writing and I can tell there's a joy, like you're dancing with the words. You're not just telling me a story. You are inviting me into an experience through language. Maybe I'm putting words into your mouth that aren't true, but I'm trying to get more understanding for anyone who's listening around that sustainability of a voice, if it can pull a whole narrative, you know, that is a lot of heavy lifting to create a 90,000 word novel. Yeah. Yeah. Such a good question. I love what you say about rhythm. I do feel like that's part of it. And uh, and even with writing novels, it feels much more expansive than a story, but almost thinking of each chapter as like a mini story. There is kind of this feeling of focusing on that dance or that rhythm like chapter by chapter, and then you're slowly building the whole novel. I do really love playing with stories. So like how my parents fell in love that we talked about with just playing with language, playing with structure. I, I have some stories in the book that I wanted to write a story around, but that wasn't sustainable for a novel. But I feel it has to do with the rhythm, with the voice. Maybe too, Holly, it comes back to this idea of partnering with the story to be told I don't know if it's related to urgency or just a sense that it just feels different sometimes when I sit out to write a story. The voice feels like it has something important to say, but that it doesn't need 300 pages to say it, if that makes sense. And I think sometimes it can be even more powerful to have 
a 10 page story, then like needing to expand that into a 200 page novel. And so part of it for me feels like listening to what the story wants to be and not trying to force it into something longer. And I think actually for a little while, I resisted expanding the frozen windmills into a longer piece because I was worried that it would lose some of the intensity or some of that foreboding tone. Like, can I sustain that over a novel? Or do we want to have that over a novel? Or what will that look like? And the story, the heart of it is very much the same, but it does, it, it did change. When I think of the story and the novel, they're definitely like two separate things. It doesn't feel like the novel is an adaptation of the story, really. It feels almost like it's a whole separate creative piece that the voice does feel different than the story version, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, so here's my sense. I'm wondering if when you knew it's because when it was the novel, it wanted to reveal something to you. Well, it's also interesting. We've talked about grief a lot and about some real things that happened in my life. When I first expanded the novel or when I first decided to make it into a novel, part of it was external deadline pressure. I was in my MFA program and I had to have an MFA thesis. And this was a story that could be, become bigger. But that first draft really didn't satisfy me in a lot of levels. It didn't quite feel necessary but then life happens and I lost my friend. All of a sudden, it did seem like there was more that the story wanted to reveal to me or teach me. I almost feel like it wasn't time for the story to become a novel until it was time. You needed to come to a place where you had healed enough where you could have the perspective that you probably needed for whatever aspect of loss that you are addressing. If you really do look at the timing of your life, it's probably actually weirdly perfect in terms of your own emotional preparedness for what you had actually learned that needed to come out. I think the writing process is so incredibly healing that way. There's such a deeper root emotionally to these stories and that if we don't have them, we can't sustain a narrative for 300 pages. I mean, it's impossible, but you can feel the gravity of it in this one. So anyone who is listening, who wants to study these things, take a look at Frozen Windmills in comparison to the other stories here and see how it you know, really does lend itself to becoming a novel. And yet it's its own separate short story. Yeah. And I think too, what, what came up for me, Holly, is the idea that I do feel like we're different people through the tr transformational process of writing, in particular, a novel, but even a story. It's just so amazing how when I think back to what I've written, I often don't even realize what it had to teach me until later looking back and reading through it. You know, we see our own evolution on the page. And I think definitely with that story, it's a lot about grief and it's also has some elements of homecoming, leaving home, returning home, regret. For whatever reason, I think those were some themes that I had to continue to explore. And the novel was certainly a way to do that, that it felt needed. I think related to what we were talking to with partnering, I think the best way of knowing if you have a story that needs to be expanded is if it feels like not something that you are enforcing upon the story, but something that the story wants to say. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where it becomes fun. This past year, I interviewed Daniel Handler, Lemony Snicket on the podcast, and he said that he spoke to someone at some literary magazine and he went in and he saw the slush pile. It was so frightening to him. And he asked his friend, who was the editor-in-chief, how do you handle it? You know, it was just to him a pile of slithering snakes. And the editors looked at him and he said, I just look for a constant rate of surprise. 
Before we go, I always want to ask the authors on the podcast, who are you reading now, authentically reading? What has grabbed you in terms of an opening, a beginning? There are there are so many. I'm definitely a kind of reading multiple books at a time sort of person, but I was thinking about how I'm honored to be your first short story guest. So I brought a book from my nightstand, The Collection of Short Stories by Hilma Wolitzer. It's called Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket. And what's really neat about this collection as well is Hilma Wolitzer is a very celebrated short story writer, and she's been writing for many, many years during the glory days of short story writing, where she would publish in the 60s and 70s and the glossy magazines. Her final story in the collection is one that she just wrote this past year. So it's really neat to also see her evolution as a story writer. There's a such a timelessness about her stories that I really love. So I brought that one. I'm happy to read the first paragraph. And I will say Hilma is just a very kind and generous person as well. I was lucky enough to take a writing workshop from her many years ago. And she's also just a wonderful person, which I just love when our favorite writers are also like wonderful and generous people. So the title story is the first story, A Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket. Even now, saying it aloud or repeating that sentence to my husband later, I will see that it is meant to amuse, to attract interest, to get attention. Of course, I'm too sophisticated in things psychological. Isn't everyone today to think that one goes mad at a moment's notice? There are insipid beginnings to a nervous breakdown. There's lonely crying in the bathroom, balanced on the edge of the tub, and in the kitchen, weeping into the dishwater, tears breaking the surface of the suds. There's forgetting or wishing to forget the names of the children, the way to the local bank, the reason for getting up in the morning. There's loss of vanity, toenails growing long and dirty into prehensile claws, hair uncombed, eyebrows unplucked. Yet something seems very right to me about going mad in a supermarket. Those painted oranges threatening to burst at the navel. Formations of cans armored with labels and prices and weights. Cuts of meat aggressively bloody and crafty peaches and apples showing only their glowing perfect faces hiding the rot and soft spots on their undersides. It could have been written today. That was incredible. I am so grateful for your time and I hope people have a chance to discover your writing and discover what you have to offer. It's been a pleasure having you on the Page One podcast and I look forward to having you as a guest again. It's been so much fun. I love talking with you. I love your podcast. And just thank you for all the the labor of love that you put into these conversations. It's just so amazing. You've been listening to Page One, a podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm the host and producer, Holly Payne, and I interview the world's master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their latest book. If you're an aspiring writer or a book lover curious about how stories are made, the Page One podcast offers inspiration, wisdom, and some tips of the trade from the world's greatest authors. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I can't wait for you to tune into the next one. If you like Page One, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast players. And please share this episode with your friends and family. Until then, keep writing. The world needs your stories. And keep reading. Books are medicine for the soul. I hope page one helps you discover something you'll love. If you'd like to learn more about my writing, coaching, or books, you can find me at hollylynnpayne.com or on Twitter and Instagram at hollylynnpayne. Thank you.